Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Marcus de Sotoy, a mathematician at the University of Oxford, loves games, backgammon, mahjong, ticket to ride. For him, they're a way to play mathematics. But the psychological elements of competition and collaboration also make games endlessly fascinating. And from his travels across the globe collecting games and learning their origins, de Sotoy believes they're the height of human ingenuity with the power to create connection, strengthen bonds, and shape who we are. What games did you play with family and friends over the Thanksgiving holiday? Tell us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Last holiday week, after the Thanksgiving table had been cleared, did you pull out a game to play? Maybe Scrabble or Settlers of Catan, or maybe you grabbed a deck of cards. Oxford mathematician Marcus de Sotoy, in his new book called Around the World in 80 Games, explores why we're drawn to games, how they have a unique way of teaching us things and bringing out our personalities, and how games are also expressions of the countries and cultures they come from. Tell me the game you play, and I will tell you who you are, says DeSotoy. So tell us, what is your favorite game and why? What do games bring out in you? You can tell us at 866-733-6786 by emailing forum at kqed.org or posting on our social channels at KQED Forum. Marcus DeSotoy joins me now. Welcome to Forum. Great to be with you. Glad to have you. One of the games you love, Marcus, as I understand, is Backgammon. Tell us why. Oh, backgammon uh, it hits all the sweet spots of what I'm looking for in a really good game. Um, I think some games suffer by the fact that if one player is really good at the game uh, and you've got a kind of new player, then somehow that's not really fair and you know who's <laughs> going to win. So something like chess, so you might think a mathematician would love chess, but um, I think chess suffers a bit from that because, you know, like Donald Trump against Gary Kasparov, you know who's going to win. But uh, so backgammon has a lovely element of strategy, which are, you know, you want to express your personality. So strategy is important, but I like a little bit of chance and luck. And that's uh, what I think backgammon has this sweet combination between, you know, it does depend on the role of the dice. And so even if you're a beginner, you might be lucky with the rolls of the dice. 
But if you're experienced, you can still use bad dice to position your pieces very carefully. It's also one of the most ancient games because mm. it has its origins in a game which actually is um, here in the UK, in London. Um, it's 5,000-year-old board game called the Royal Game of Ore. And it's a racing game like Backgammon. But um, Backgammon really grew out of those early racing games where you're trying to get your pieces around the board and off before your opponent. Yeah, I, I love that description. And also, I love the description of why I think I avoid chess. <laughs> Aha, yes, exactly. I think, you know, if, you, if you're if you playing somebody who knows their openings, then, you know, after 12 moves, you're already at a disadvantage. Yeah, yeah, not my strongest game. But what draws you personally to games, Marcus? And I imagine by exploring that, some of those reasons extend to all of us. Yeah, I think uh, games are a little bit like stories and we're all drawn to stories ever since we've been sitting around the campfire. So I think we now sit around the kitchen table and we play these games a bit like telling a story. And for me, that's important element of a of a game that it should be telling some story, whether it's rather abstract like Backgammon or Dungeons and Dragons, where you really are characters. But I think a game is slightly different from a story because a story is very often a passive experience you know uh you you read it but somebody else is in control but in a game actually you're in control you're you're an active participant you're making the story and you know a game can make you a, a story can make you sad but a, a game can actually make you feel guilty because of what you've just done to your opponent so i, I think there's a a universal kind of love of games because they are a bit like our stories um, in some ways. Yeah. You have also pointed out that some have argued our species should be called not homo sapiens, but homo ludens. Am I saying that correctly? Yes, homo ludens, the playing species. It's um, actually not my idea, but a cultural theorist called Heisinger, um, who believed that actually playing games may have been more important to our evolutionary development than just uh, our abstract thinking. You see, I think games uh, are defined by a set of rules. And I think as soon as our species realize that the universe is controlled by rules, that games are a kind of like a way of experimenting with the universe, a safe space to try out possibilities. You know, let's set up a set of rules and what are the consequences of those? So I think that, you know, playing allowed us to do experiments, which we could then take back um, into our, our, our real world settings. Um, huh. uh, so yeah, I think uh, there is a real role that games have played um, for us as a species. But, you know, of course, all, a lot of animals play games, but I think only when they're, you know, they're young and when they become adults, they they put the games away. But I think we're rather unique as a species in continuing to play games right through into adulthood, into our, our later age. And a lot of evidence that playing games is good for our brain and and, and keeps us nimble even as we grow old. We're talking with mathematician Marcus de Sotoy this hour. He's written a new book called Around the World in 80 Games, from Tarot to Tic-Tac-Toe, Catan to Shoots and Ladders. A mathematician unlocks the secrets of the world's greatest games. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. Let me go to Christopher in San Francisco. Christopher, you're on. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, when I was younger, as like a four or five-year-old, my father taught my brothers and I how to play poker after Halloween because we had chocolates and that's what matters to kids. <laughs> And so uh, we, every time we have family get together, we still play poker. And it's uh, one of the most fun things we do as a family. Why do you think it's endured as the thing that you do as a family so much? 
I think uh, it's we're, we're very competitive, my brothers and I. And so uh-huh. it's, it's been a way to measure our competitiveness in how much we've grown as a person or how much we've learned. Or even if we didn't, we still just, you know, got better cards than them and can hold it over their heads. <laughs> oh, Christopher, thanks. Actually, you're quite the admirer of a simple deck of cards, aren't you, Professor DeSoto? <laughs> I think a, a pack of cards is possibly humanity's greatest invention. Because, you know, in this little box, uh, 52 cards, there there are so many games. I mean, poker's one of them, but whist and bridge and gin rummy. Uh, I mean, it's almost endless, the games that you can play. So I think that's there. But tracing the origins of cards, which I do in this book, has been a fascinating journey, you know, right back to um, ancient India and China um, and the the way cards have evolved and changed. It's a bit like watching a species change and and develop and grow new things and new abilities. So uh, cards are absolutely fascinating. And and poker in particular, which is a lovely blend of, you know, chance, what cards you get, um, but strategy, there's mathematics about should I bet now? How much should I bet? But also, of course, psychology, because uh, reading uh, that sudden excitement in the eyes of your opponent, you realize, well, okay, they got something I can't compete against. So <laughs> yeah, I think it's a beautiful game. <laughs> a lot going on in a poker game. Um, and then to your other point, you do talk about how games are an expression of the regions they come from, and that yeah. so many games we may not realize are from India. Oh, India is my favorite continent uh, that I visited uh, on this journey around the world because uh, I had so many surprises about games that I thought were maybe European, um, which actually have their origins in India. I mean, the most interesting one, I think, is, uh, well, we call it snakes and ladders in the UK, but you call it shoots and ladders. This, um, I thought, was a kind of 20th century game, but it turns out it has... Uh, an ancient origins in India. It was a game used by Indian religion, philosophy, and the Jain religion to teach the impact of good and bad karma on your goal to reach nirvana or Mm. or moksha or paradise. So, you know, each snake was labeled by some bad trait, like drunkenness would take you away from paradise. And the ladders were uh, labeled by, you know, being good to a neighbor would help you to to get get to your destination. So they were really teaching tools for um, morality. Yeah, and therein lies sort of the cultural expression of what matters, right, to a a certain region or a place and how they view (laughs) the way that you get to know. But interestingly as well, um, in in India, I really noticed that that Indians love to give themselves up to the role of the dice, that fate is going to decide their destiny. Because, of course, in Snakes and Ladders, there's no strategy at all. I mean, Gary Kasparov against Donald Trump would be quite a fair match in Snakes and Ladders. (laughs) Um, So it's kind of interesting that uh, this game actually says, you know, maybe you don't have control. And and I noticed that in actually a lot of Indian games. You know, chess has its origins in India. And that's another game which has changed like cards over the time. Chess originally uh, was a four-player game and also involved a dice. The dice would be used to decide which piece you were allowed to move. And then you could move it in a few different ways. But again, it was weird that the dice was being used uh, to control the pieces and when gambling was banned in India, they weren't allowed to use the dice anymore. And then some smart Alex said, hey, 
but we don't need a dice. Perhaps we could just decide ourselves whether we're moving the knight or the bishop. Um, so interesting. There, there you see the the trait of India loving kind of the role of the dice of fate. Somehow, perhaps you aren't in control of everything. Well, I was also fascinated by your description of how games are also a reflection of the times they were made in. So, for example, Settlers of Catan emerged from Germany in part because after World War II, there was a desire to have far fewer war-based games. Right? Yes. In fact, I think war-based games, which were in fact banned in Germany. Um, so, you know, Panzer Division didn't really hack it as a uh, as a game that went down <laughs> well in Germany. And, and actually, if you look at the games uh, that were emerging through the 20th century, a lot of them are about warfare or world domination. I mean, things like Risk, where your armies are trying to take over um, the whole board, the, the whole world. So um, Germany, you know, was somehow held back by this, but then some people had a clever idea to create a uh, a prize. It's kind of the Oscars of board games. It's called Spiel des Jahres or Game of the Year. And this was meant to inspire a kind of new genres of games in Germany that went away from warfare. And you see things like Settlers of Catan, which is a really popular game um, across the world now, a sort of new style of game. It's a settling game where you're trying to um, create villages, uh, pathways through there, but it's also a big trading game. So this is one of the important things for me about a game. It's social. You play with other people and Settlers of Catan is lovely because you're trading uh, goods that you have in your hand with others uh, and you're constantly talking to people, negotiating and and through that game, you therefore discover really a lot about who somebody is. Yeah. And, and you're building something as opposed to maybe destroying something or taking yes, over something. Exactly. That, I think that's a really important part. And you see a lot of beautiful games these days um, where where building and construction and positive outlook is, is really at the heart of the game. Yeah. We're talking with Professor Marcus de Sotoy of the University of Oxford about the power of games. The games we play, why we play them, and what games we play say about us. What game do you love to play? What do you look for in a game? Is there a lesser known game you wish more people played? Share it with us at 866-733-6786, posting online or emailing forum at kqed.org. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour with Marcus Desotoy, who's written a book called Around the World in 80 Games, all about the games that we play, their cultural origins, what they say about us as a species. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation, telling us what games you love to play, what you look for in a game. If there are tips you'd like from Marcus about opening moves and strategy, he's written a lot about that too. And so if there's a favorite game that you want to play that you want to get better at, uh, feel free to ask those questions. Talk about how games have created bonds, maybe strengthened or changed relationships for you, or maybe what personality traits a game brings out in you, you can call us at 866-733-6786. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, on our digital community on Discord at KQED Forum. You can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. Elizabeth tweets, we love chronology. The rules are easy and it's fun. Great for a group. We played it after dinner on Thanksgiving. Wendy on Discord writes, chess is awesome. Once you learn how the pieces move and pick up some strategies, it's so much fun. People all over the world from all walks of life know how to play. Check out the Berkeley Chess School. They have lessons and tournaments for for all levels. Well, thank you for that, Wendy. I do I do not want to diss chess at all. I actually have visions of myself in the future learning to play chess and having lots of time to get incredibly good at it. <laughs> um, but Marcus, we touched a lot about sort of the power of games, the cultural expression of games, but I wanted to talk with you a little bit more about what you feel like games teach us. There was this point where you write that Games can sharpen our mind-reading skills. You attribute this to Irving Finkel. And I kind of love that because I felt like in some ways you were almost saying they teach us to have empathy. Yes. I think that one thing you need when you're playing a game against somebody else is a theory of mind. You need to think about what the other player might do in response to your particular move, and and therefore you will plan accordingly. So um, uh, Irving Finkel, um, who was one of the people who actually decoded the rules for this ancient game of or this 5,000-year-old game, um, he, he suggested this idea that perhaps games developed um, not as experiments, but actually as a, a tool to help us read the, the mind of the other. And, you know, I think you really do see that. I mean, I, I was very struck by the way Dungeons and Dragons is often used by um, people, uh, uh, neurodiverse people who find actually social interaction often um, perhaps uh, very frightening or so unpredictable. But when there are sort of rules that they understand, uh, somehow it enables people to open up and and explore their personalities in relationship to other people. So uh, I think games also offer a very safe space. Actually, I just came back from India, and very strikingly, um, they use games at the beginning of a wedding because often a couple don't know each other very well in an arranged marriage, and games are a very safe space to start to get to know the partner you're going to be with for the rest of your life. So very interesting, the role of games in Indian weddings. What game do you play? Because I bet there are people who would love a recommendation for a game to get to know someone better on that <laughs> level. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, the games, you know, there was something very interesting said by uh, one of your listeners about um, simplicity, because uh, I yes. think that's really important for a game. You see, I play with my family and a lot of games. I have three children, my wife as well. Um, but, 
if I'm still explaining the rules after two minutes, they're drifting away and the, the game is lost. I mean, I, I have games on my shelf that we've never played because the rules are just too complicated. So I think it's really important um, that the game have a simple entry. But, you know, I want the game to be complex so that every time we play, it'll be different. I mean, that's one of the lovely things about the Settlers of Catan, because the board is made up of lots of hexagons, but every time you put the hexagons down, um, it's a different island that you're settling um, each time. So in a way, there are thousands and thousands of boards inside that box because of the uh, possibilities of mixing up these little hexagons. So um, I think also, again, for me, one of the important things about a game is that it shouldn't finish before it ends. What Hmm. I mean by that is that, you know, Monopoly, I think, is a highly flawed game. It seems to be everyone's game of choice at uh, the holiday period. But actually, about halfway through the game, you know who's going to win. And then you grind out for several hours the bankruptcy of all the other players. And <laughs> um, and it's, it's it becomes a rather boring game. So for me, I think a game, you know, a game I really love playing with my family is um, Ticket to Ride, which even though you're, you know, building all of these train tracks across America, um, up to the end of the game, it's really unclear who's going to win it. And, and I love that fact that right up to the last moment, you feel like everyone's still involved. And for me, that's a really important part of a game. That's true. Often a lot is revealed in that final count. And actually, Ticket to Ride yes. is one of my family's favorite games. So I want to ask you, Marcus, is there some way to have any kind of advantage in Ticket yes. to Ride? Yes. Uh, I, there is. Um, you know, I'm giving away all my secrets in this book. It's um, <laughs> But um, the interesting thing is, uh, wherever there are points involved, that's where maths can be very useful because you can see, you know, what are the things I should go for? What are the best payoffs? And, and actually, to make a game requires a lot of mathematical skills. And I think, you know, whoever made Ticket to Ride, you know, really played around with that points to kind of uh, they really want to reward you taking risk. So it's kind of easy to make short paths um, with these train tracks, but um, you get rewarded highly for taking a risk of con- trying to connect Los Angeles to New York, for example. So if you can achieve that, the points you get back are going to really pay off. So uh, my strategy is always actually to take quite high risks, um, but to go for these long routes because they're the ones that are actually, um, the, the. it's interesting because this is an example of things being non-linear in a game. You, you know, you're every time you put down more um, track across this route, you're getting more reward, not just a simple addition, but a bit of cranking up um, of, of multiplication on these routes. So um, my tip, go for those big routes, take that risk, because they're the ones that are going to give you more points at the end. (laughs) Good to know. Well, Michael has a question that I also was going to put to you. Michael writes, has there been any research into people who don't like games or, you know, why don't some people like games, essentially? Yes, that's interesting because um, you'd think it, surely everyone loves games, but there are some people who who really don't. And I I think part of it is... um, that games should inherently have uncertainty about them. Um, If there's too much certainty, then, you know, it isn't really a game. So uncertainty is a really key part of it. And I think for some people, that uncertainty is is very unsettling. So I think that might be one thing. Another is this competitiveness. I mean, the the guy who uh, talked about the 
his family playing poker. You know, they obviously enjoy that sort of uh, competitiveness across the family. But for others, that can be um, a real turnoff. I mean, for example, the royal family here in the UK has banned the paying, playing of Monopoly because it just caused too many family arguments. Um, uh, and there's an interesting story I tell in the book about uh, a couple that um, the the husband really loved playing games, but the wife, after a while, just got so tired of the manipulation of this uh, guy and the way he, he was so competitive and wanted to win. And she said, I'm not playing games with you anymore. And so he developed a new style of game. It's called a collaborative game. And he's the actually the creator of a game called Pandemic, which actually won the Spiel des Jahres, this game of the year. And it's oh. a real new game mechanic because you all play collectively sort of against the game. And so you either all win or you all lose together. And I think that's really appealed to, to some people who didn't like the sort of hyper-competitive nature of a game and, and wanted to sort of play together. Um, and so there are now a lot of games where, where you play together sort of against the game. Yeah. Well, Scott's one of those people who sounds like they don't like hyper-competitive games. Scott writes, my 30-year-old daughter loves games. She wants to know the rules and how to win it. She's very competitive. I am the opposite. And the poor thing has always been confused by that. I am not interested in trying to be better than anyone except the person I was yesterday. The only games that I can stand are the ones where a team competes to solve a problem, not beat a person or group of people. Very interesting. Uh, yeah. Let me go to, what does that say about Scott? No, <laughs> I go to Noah and Richmond. Hi, Noah, you're on. Hi, thank you. Uh, my question is about kind of the, uh, the relative complexity of what goes into a game in the background, in the rules, uh, versus the complexity of outcomes in terms of what players can do. And one of the things that comes to mind is uh, Dungeons & Dragons versus Baldur's Gate. Um, so Baldur's Gate is a video game that's based entirely on Dungeons & Dragons. Same rules, you even see the dice rolling on the screen. But it takes you through a story um, that has multiple endings, you can interact in different ways, but fundamentally if you replay the game, eventually there's a limited number of ways you can play it. Whereas Dungeons & Dragons is only limited by the player's imagination. And so I wonder if the guests could talk a little bit more about um, what goes into designing a game with lots of different outcomes and ways to play, and what, is make, what makes it fundamentally different from games that can get a little bit rote and repetitive? So, yeah, I think that's such, a, such an interesting question. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's part of um, game developers really try to find this sweet spot between um, a game which people can start very quickly, yet somehow has infinite possibility in, in the outcome. Dungeons and Dragons is quite a tricky one. And I talk about this in the book because my family got this when it first came out uh, when I was uh, still at school. And Somebody has to do a lot of work as Dungeon Master, and I was nominated to be Dungeon Master, and I put in this huge amount of work. It was like doing an exam. Um, you had this kind of booklets which helped you to construct the um, narrative. So you do need somebody who's prepared to do quite a lot of work. And what's very interesting in comparison with video games is that a lot of the work is done for you by the code. And actually, I think that's often a shame. I think people quite enjoy trying to wrestle with the rules, understand them, implement them. They like being a sort of uh, part of the, the game mechanics. And that's why we quite like all of the things made out of card and making these things. And video games sort of 
take that away. And, you know, I think there's a lot of evidence that the reason board games are still so successful in our digital age is that we still love uh, things made and moved with our hands. Our hands are actually such an important part of our species, um, how we sort of engage with the world. And to reduce everything just to a digit, the digital, you know, swiping across your phone or tapping on a computer or on, on a console, I, I think actually people miss the the sort of um, the just analog nature of, of games. And and as as was said there, the the video game very often is is almost too controlling. It just I mean there are lovely examples now in Zelda's a lovely example where you can just explore um the kind of landscape and you aren't confined to go in a particular direction. But but overall there's still um a story that you're meant to sort of complete and even if you have freedom it's quite often uh, still feeling a little bit restricted and something like Dungeons and Dragons really is just as, as your listener said, it's just uh, the imagination of the players is the only limitation. I know that you've said that this is a big question, a hard question. What defines a game? But you have mm. settled on a definition from someone that you think actually works quite well, right? Yeah, I think it's very interesting because um, Wittgenstein uh, said that it was it's it's very hard to define words and that we only know what a word means when we actually use the word and so he called uh, our understanding of words language games and that's actually one of the games in the book is is language games um and he gave actually as a, an example of a word that's very hard to pin down is the word game uh, because uh you know if you try and define what a game means yet yeah, has rules um uh, maybe it's uh, uh has uncertainty in it and things like that uh, then you always find there are things which are included which you didn't want to have there and things excluded that um you want so but i i do like this definition of um bernard sweets he says playing a game is a voluntary attempt to overcome unnecessary obstacles and i really like that because the voluntary attempt you know a game is really important that you are choosing to play it. It's it's expressing your agency, your free will. You're not being made to do this. This isn't work. This is the opposite of work. It's play. So you're voluntarily um, it, it, choosing to play the game, yet, weirdly, you set up these rules which restrict what you can do. You know, you can't move your bishop anywhere on the board. It can only go along the diagonals. Um, and what you enjoy doing is then within these rules, trying to get to a destination, whether it be checkmate or um, the final square in shoots and ladders. So it's kind of a curious activity. What are we doing? We set up these obstacles and then we choose to try and be restricted by the obstacles and but still get to a destination. So I quite like things. That's a very neat little sentence to sum up perhaps the uh, inequalities of what makes a game. Yeah. We're talking with Marcus de Sotoy, celebrated mathematician who happens to love games. So he's written a book called Around the World in 80 Games. Just really quickly, do you regard casino games as games then? Sometimes I think people are doing yeah. it involuntarily, honestly. <laughs> Well, that's really interesting because I think games inherently should be unproductive. You know, they shouldn't be for something. As soon as they become for something, whether it's teaching you something or, um, you know, making money, uh, then it becomes more like work. And, and that's why I think the casino, it's really important 
and I think this is for your psychology. When you go into the casino, you shouldn't really be trying to make money. You should be just enjoying yourself. And whether you lose money um, or win money, it's actually, it's playing the games, which should be actually enjoyment. And that's interesting because, you know, the casinos, of course, rigged to help you to lose money. Um, Mathematicians have been employed to ensure that, you know, the roulette wheel, for example, is weighted uh, uh, in the long run um, for the casino. But that said, you know, people enjoy just that uh, element of perhaps winning sometimes, losing others. So I think if you're actually going into the casino to to try and make money, um, you're really going against this whole spirit of games and and the casino, and you probably will end up losing money. Well, we've got a lot of listeners weighing in right now. Let me read a few more comments. Julie writes, my husband, 15-year-old son, and I love Pandemic. We've been playing the legacy version of the game in which you change the board with stickers, rules change, characters change, the goals change. This is the second time we're playing Pandemic Legacy because we love it so much. Yes, we had to buy a new set. Totally worth it. Jeffrey tweets, I suspect you can guess some of my ethnic background when I tell you my favorite game is jazz. Jazz? Do you know jazz? Mm. Yeah, that rings a bell. Um, But I can't remember. Mm. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Um, Our producer is saying it's a German or Swiss. It's German. It's the card game. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You see, I've spent a lot of time uh, walking across the Alps and I encounter these games which are very specific to particular regions. Um, So and they involve very special sets of cards which don't have, um, you know, the 52 cards that we're used to and and different uh, suits as well. So, yes, that was one I actually picked up this summer in Austria when I was walking um, and, and tried to learn to play. So, yeah. I knew it sounded familiar. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Susan writes, our grandson and his parents live in Memphis, Tennessee, a two-flight trip to visit at best. We see him several times a year, but not during the COVID pandemic. Those years, we saw him weekly. Each Monday, we had lunch with him. We chatted during his meal break from Zoom school, and then we played charades. It is hard to explain how much this connected us. We learned a lot about each other with all that thinking and guessing. It kept us aware of each other in a way that just talking did not. And it was fun. We got to maintain family connection with play across the miles and virus. We miss those Mondays. Any thoughts on charades really quick as we're coming up on a break? Well, but. yeah, I think they're related to theater games, which is one of the things I talk about. The role of games to actually create theater um, is, is a very established part of kind of uh, theater practice. And it sounds like it is also a way of just building connection, of getting to know people, of something about our humanness that gets expressed. Yeah, and also just a a space to, to, um, you know, where you don't have to think about things too much because the game is doing a lot of the work for you. Yeah, we're talking about games that get played a lot with family and friends, especially around the holidays with Marcus DeSotoy. And we'll have more after the break. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about games with Marcus de Sotoy, the Simony professor, Simone professor at the University of Oxford. In his new book, Around the World in 80 Games, de Sotoy applies his knowledge as a mathematician to help us understand what makes a good board game, why they're so important to our history and culture, and even our understanding of who we are. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation. Chris in Palo Alto, you're on. Hi, Chris. Oh, hi. Thank you. Can you hear me? I can. Oh, great. Um, Really enjoying this show. And I'm definitely going to check out your guest book. I am someone who is notorious among my friends for not liking games. I've said this so many times. I'm not a gamer. And I don't think it's the uncertainty. I think it's the competition. Uh, My older brother was somewhat of a savant. He was a math prodigy and a chess prodigy when we were kids. And I just didn't even want to go there as, you know, there there was just no hope. He would just, you know, ace me in three moves. So, and I was very good at other things. And so I enjoyed excelling at what I was good at. And I had no interest in being mediocre at what was a struggle for me. But later in life, I discovered that I enjoyed solitaire. And now that I'm older and I'm starting to lose parents and friends, I realized that some of my fondest memories are actually just times when I was idly playing low stakes games, you know, just simple board games with with kids or just playing dumb card games, crazy eights with friends. And so I think social bonding, the social bonding aspect that was mentioned at the beginning of the program is is actually, I think, um, really, really interesting and precious. And I look forward to checking out the book. Thanks very much. Well, thank you, Chris. That's such a lovely reflection of the role that games have played in your life. Um, And kind of to Chris's point, another listener writes, what games do you recommend for families that are fun for children 10 years and older and adults up to 80 years old? Do you have a recommendation, Marcus? Yeah, I think um, one that's really uh, I think proving popular is uh, called Wingspan. And this is uh, interesting partly because it's a, uh, a lot of women are starting to come into making board games. And this is uh, a board game uh, designed by a woman who was tired of uh, board games that were to do with castles and goblins and uh, fighting. Uh, and she was a, a big nature lover. And this is about actually collecting birds for a nature reserve. Um, and I've, I've see, heard a lot of people, you know, from uh, young children through to adulthood who just really enjoy the, the dynamics of this game. So mm. um, pa- perhaps try that. Well, one game that I have loved playing with my young kids and also, you know, with their grandparents is Spot It. It feels so easy for them. Yeah, you like Spot It too, I know. (laughs) I do, yes. (laughs) Talk about why. Well, partly I love Spot It. Uh, I think that's also a lovely um, game with easy entry. Kids are very good at it. Uh, These cards uh, are circular cards. And each card has eight little icons on them, like spiders or a little cat or a clown. Um, And if anybody takes two cards 
uh, you know, you're playing against somebody else, two cards, there's always one icon in common on both these cards. And you win the cards if you can spot first which icon is on both cards. Um, uh, Actually, I'm rubbish at this. I just, (laughs) I can look at these cards and go, no, there's a mistake on this one. There's nothing in common. And and my girls will go, no, it's it's the frog. Um, But I love this game because it's a beautiful example of how um, mathematical structures can make beautiful games. Because it's a very simple game, but how do you make a set of cards uh, 55 cards in the pot uh, with uh, with this property that, you know, uh, eight icons on each card, yet any cards, two cards you choose, there's an icon in common. Um, well, actually, this is a beautiful piece of mathematical geometry because the cards are points in this geometry. And if you take two points in a geometry, you can draw a line through those two points. Yes. It's not true if you take three because one of the points might be off. So you can make a triangle. But so actually the icons on the cards correspond to all the lines you can draw in this geometry. And so when you take two cards, there will be a line through those two cards. And that li- line will correspond to the icon, which is on both cards. So it's a beautiful uh, it's actually called a finite geometry, a projective plane of order seven for all those nerds out there who know their maths. Um, but it's a very special geometry. Um, but it's a key to making this game. And um, you don't need to know the geometry, of course, to play the game, but to make the game, you do. And that's what I think is really interesting. You know, there's a lot of mathematics behind a lot of games. You understand that maths. Sometimes it can give you an advantage. But when you're making games, very often to know the maths is important to make a game that works, that is, uh, you know, doesn't take too long or too short. So um, a lot of mathematics goes into the making of games. Yeah. Well, Maria writes, our favorite family game came out of the closet this Thanksgiving, Mousetrap, the combination of animals and moving parts combined with the chance factors and the desire to win. It's like hide and seek at the Musée Mécanique. (laughs) Martin writes, there's a board game called Class Struggle that has a portrait of Karl Marx on the box. I think it was based loosely on Monopoly. Do you know this game? Marcus? I don't, but what's (laughs) interesting about Monopoly that originally it was a game critiquing uh, the capitalist culture. And it was designed by a woman and she brought it to a game manufacturer and the game manufacturer rejected it. Um, And then it was stolen by a man, uh, redesigned as a celebration of capitalism. And then the game manufacturer uh, actually published it. So mm. originally it was not kind of the celebration we see now of um, owning property and charging rent. Um, it was actually more of a Marxist game at heart. Wow. An expression of who we are and what we value. <laughs> Let me yes, call exactly. her Amy in Berkeley. Hi, Amy, you're on. Hi there. Great show. Thanks, Mina. And thank you to your guest. Um, somebody already said charade. So I'll, I'll jump ahead to a couple other theater games. Um, well, and, or one that's uh, based on dictionary, kind of the early precursor to dictionary. But if you have a really good dictionary in your house, you just pull it out and you go around the circle. Each person, one at a time, gets to pick a, book, a word out of the dictionary that you think other people won't know. And then everybody else has to write, make up a definition. And then the person who had chosen it reads them all. And people then vote on which one they think is real. So you get points if somebody votes for your made-up definition, and you also get a point if you guess the correct definition. Um, I love that. Can I also share a couple theater games with you? Yeah, real quick. Uh, 
sure. One that doesn't take any 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 supplies, so kind of like charades, um, called Guest of Honor. And you send one person out of the environment, and everybody else decides what famous person that person is. Then they come back. You can do it with people milling around like we did when I was getting my theater degree. Or you can even do it around a dinner table. And you talk to that person, but without giving them anything specific, and they have to figure out who they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Marcus, you... So- that yeah. sounds yeah, that's really. I, I, well, I do a lot of theatre. It's my other passion yes. as well as games and mathematics. Um, and what I love about these kind of theatre games is that, you know, if you ask somebody to improvise, they just dry up because it's too intimidating. But if you provide a sort of set of rules to work within, it allows, weirdly, rules can actually lead you to being more creative. Um, in fact, Stravinsky, the famous composer, said, I can only be creative under huge constraints. And he would put these uh, kind of rules, uh, like almost game rules, uh, for his composition. But um, I've certainly used in a lot of my theatre practice um, these sort of games like that. There's another lovely one where um, everyone gets a number from one to ten, and then they have to assume the status of that person. So one is very low, 10 is very high, and they have to just interact in the room. And and then at the end of the game, they have to order themselves in who they think is um, uh, the status from one to 10. And it's really interesting. You know, low and high is really easy, but the middle ones, just working out the subtleties of, um, am I above you or below you, uh, is really interesting to, to see at play. Well, John writes, the games I like to play most revolve around knowledge, art, and creativity. I love games like Jeopardy, Trivial Pursuit, and Pictionary. Then again, I am a librarian. <laughs> so let me ask There's you There's something this. very funny. Yeah, sure. Yes, go ahead. Go ahead, please. Well, well, it was funny because, you know, I think I talk about Scrabble in the book, and many yes. people think that Scrabble will be a game that wordsmiths will be terrifically good at, um, and, you know, the mathematicians won't be able to um, beat them. But unfortunately... Uh, Scrabble is a great example of a game that looks like it's about words, but actually mathematicians are very often the ones who win this kind of world championship because um, they just know all these sneaky things to maximize the points, like learning lots of two-letter words so they can get lots of intricate combinations of words by putting down just one word. Um, and, And there's a lot of kind of mathematical strategy, so much so that the English Scrabble Championship once decided to enter the French Scrabble Championship, although he spoke no French and using his mathematical strategies, he became French Scrabble champion, although he speaks no French. I mean, that's really saying that you don't need to know the language to win this game. (laughs) Absolutely. What I had wanted to ask you was you discussed the link between happiness and gameplay. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Yes, you see, I think games are a clever way of generating happiness in the world because in some ways when you win a game, you get a sense of euphoria and joy out of winning the game. But because the game is essentially meaningless, the person who loses is able to say, well, it's just a game. So, you know, this is like a a perpetual motion machine where, you know, you're trying to create energy out of nothing. I think games are an amazing way to to sort of create happiness, more happiness than at the beginning of the game uh, is emerges out of the playing of the game. And even those who lose, actually, I think the joy of uh, of taking part is often, you know, I, I think the person who mentioned, you know, th- there shouldn't be too much at stake um, in this game. 
so that you can still enjoy the game even if you end up losing. But I think everyone who wins still gets a lovely euphoric hit of dopamine um, and, the, and the joy uh, of winning the game sort of means the games are generating happiness. Yeah. Let me go to Jesse in Oakland. Jesse, you're on. Hi. Yeah, I was um, wondering what your thoughts are on actual rules versus adopted rules. So, for example, Monopoly being a big one with um, getting money if you land on free parking um, or perhaps not going through the entire motion of the game where you have to mortgage properties at the end and, you know, people can auction to buy them because then the game that never ends goes even longer. So just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Adopted rules versus actual rules. I, I like that, actually, because uh, games are meant to be like an evolutionary species. And you you see over time, for example, chess, originally the pieces only moved about one or two squares. And it was kind of a late addition that something like the bishop could sweep across um, the board. And, and so I think that as people play the games, they find new rules that perhaps make the game better, particularly for, for them. It's interesting that, you know, cheating is an interesting part of playing a game. And huh. often uh, cheating actually leads to the development of a, a new style of game. I mean, actually, Whist kind of turned into Bridge because people were using the cards in Whist to indicate to their partners what might be in their hands. And people said, actually, this, is, this isn't cheating. This is a really interesting part of the game. And let's isolate it actually as the bidding round before we play so that people can use the bidding to, to give information about their hands in a kind of coded way. And, you know, Monopoly, of course, people realize that there were people cheating and there's a cheats version of Monopoly where, you know, if you, you pick up a cheat card in the chance or community chess cards, you have to achieve this cheat maybe it's stealing from the bank by the end of the game in order to be able to to claim that, that cheat you know as as a as a win in your your play so I, I love the way that games aren't static and they evolve and i think it's wonderful that people f- find their own rules for their own families we're talking with marcus de sotoy and you are listening to forum i'm mina kim Marcus, could you talk about the significance to you of the Herman Hess novel, The Glass Bead Game? Yes, this is uh, one of my favorite games. Uh, It's a futuristic game and we don't know how to play it because it's actually at the heart of this wonderful novel, The Glass Bead Game, written by Herman Hess, about a game that uh, it seems that to play this game, you have to kind of synthesize knowledge. So you have to bring together ideas of music, of history, of mathematics, of, of visual art. And, and these are represented by these beads in the game. And when I read this as a student, I realized this is the game that I wanted to get it, dedicate my life to. I mean, I love mathematics, but uh, I also love other things like theater and music. I play the trumpet and the cello. I love games. I love the history of where all of these things came from. I love understanding different cultures. So I, I would say that this new book, Around the World in 80 Games, is a little bit like one of my moves in the glass feed game. So for me, this game really captured my imagination as a student. And, and I kind of vowed, I, I want to not just dedicate myself to one thing. I want to actually find ways to integrate all of these beautiful ideas and parts of our culture um, in the work that I do. Yeah. So the ultimate game that you want to play actually doesn't 
physically exist at all, <laughs> but it. No, and we we don't know how to play it. But um, but there was a very curious thing that happened when I reread that book because I remember as a student just the the wonderful idea of playing this game. And there's a young student who eventually becomes the Magister Ludi, the kind of pope right. of this game, and they all retreat to this monastery uh, where they play the game. But halfway through the story, he leaves the order and he stops playing the game. And I completely forgot this. Uh, and, you know, actually, this, I think, is significant because games are a wonderful escapism. There's a separate space, separate place, a separate time. But eventually you have to put the game away, put it back on the shelf uh, and return to real life. And I think that's important. They are wonderful places to to spend some time together. But you do have to remember that they are parallel to our lives and they may help us to live our lives in new ways. But um, after the game, we have to return to, to the world around us. And maybe that game will help us to engage with the world and people in a new way. But but the game isn't everything. This listener writes, and I think there are a couple that kind of go together. What are some good car games for really long car rides? Ami writes, what are some games that require no supplies? Which I think would probably do well in long car rides as well. Like the one Marcus mentioned with people having to figure out their status from one to nine. <laughs> yes. I, actually, I, I talk about uh, some games I play a lot with my kids on long car journeys or, or train journeys. Um, one of them is called Dots and Boxes. And it's a beautiful game. You just need a piece of paper and a pen, basically. So most people can kind of rustle that up on a train journey. Yes. Um, and you just make a grid of dots and you put lines in and gradually you claim um, squares in this uh, in this grid. And that you know, paper and pencil games like Hangman, for example, I think are, are really great for uh, whiling away um, the time, uh, you know, when you're on a long journey. So, um, I, and that game actually, it turned out, was invented by a French mathematician um, who I, I study his work quite a lot and I didn't realise he was into games, but he created this thing, Dots and Boxes. <laughs> Pete tweets, does rolling the dice to see who pays for lunch count as a game? <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, you know, mathematics is very important in rolling dice and um, uh, knowing what the chances are of getting particular scores, whether you're playing craps, for example, in the casino or uh, Monopoly, you know, that's quite useful to, I've got a few tips from Monopoly um, in, in rolling the dice. So um, yeah, check out the book to find out um, if you're still playing Monopoly, um, which properties are the good ones to buy. The book is Around the World in 80 Games. Marcus DeSotoy, thank you so much for talking with us. It was wonderful to play games with you for the hour. <laughs> Honestly, it does. It feels like an escape and in many ways at the same time so much that I can apply to real life. So, <laughs> Great. so it had all those effects. Mark Nieto produced today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. Thank you, listeners, as always, for listening. We're grateful for you. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.